Good evening. This lecture is Lefuat Rachel Batsara and Yaakov Israel Chaim Ben Yafa Damikrea Diana and also Lefuat Anefesh and Chazara Betshuva of Adina Bat Irina. Bezrat Hashem. Another day of floods, Baruch Hashem. Reminds me a few months ago, that crazy night, if you remember. I've seen a lot of cars stuck on the road. You go on the road, you never know what can happen. Your car gets into some kind of a lake, and you get stuck there for hours on the FDR or on the way here. Baruch Hashem, we should never take anything for granted. Even to arrive from one place to another. That's why the Chachamim made us Birkat Aderich. The blessing of the way. When you go, you have to bless Hashem before you leave. Why? Because you never know what can happen. There's all kinds of obstacles on the way. Baruch Hashem on Shabbat, we read Parashat Balak. A perfect example, a perfect lesson in antisemitism. A king and a prophet of the Goim Bilam, which Hashem gave the Goim a prophet, the Gemara said that they don't complain later on, the Jews had all their prophets and we didn't have anything. How do you expect us to be righteous if we never had any prophet? We still have to ask, there's nothing to compare between Moshe Rabbeinu and Bilam. The earliest person in the history against one of the worst ones in the history. Just because Hashem gives him uh, special abilities, not because he's holy, because the opposite is Mamash 100% Kochot Atuma, the impurity power. So why would Hashem give the Jews the holiest prophets and he give the Goim such terrible prophets? Why is it? Is this fair? Maybe if they had a prophet that was really holy, they had one actually. One was Eov, Job in English. He was a holy man, very righteous man. They also had few other goyim that were very righteous. But we're talking now, this is the first prophet of the goyim, Bilam. In the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, I want to remind you that this Bilam was one of the three advisors of Paro. When we came out of Egypt, he is the one who gave him the advice to throw the Jewish kids, to slaughter them, and to fill up the bat with blood. That Paro that had leprosy, the new Paro, you know, there's an argument in the Gemara after Yosef passed, if they replaced Paro with another Paro, because all the Egyptian kings, their name is Pharaoh. Like the Philistines, their name is Avimelech, and another Avimelech. Avimelech the, the first, the second, the third. Same thing, Paro, the first, the second. So the question is, is did they really replace a king, or it's the same king that once they told him that you have to kill the Jews, he refused, so they fired him, they made a revolution. And when he finally surrendered to them, they brought him back into power. Either way, if it's a new king, it's a king that, uh, you know, did not know Yosef, forgot that Yosef saved Egypt from starvation. And Yosef was the, in the head of the money for 80 years, the treasury of Egypt and the world. Once Yosef passed, a new paro is already ungrateful. He doesn't remember what happened to the previous king. What is it my business? 
I want to protect my country against those Jews. They multiply, they're spreading now all over Egypt. It's time to take actions against them. That's one option. Second option, we're talking about the same king. So why the Torah say that he died? Because he got leprosy. When someone gets leprosy, it's considered like death. Because he's isolated. No one comes near him. Is basically his life is 99% over. He cannot interact with people, cannot walk, cannot come into parties, nothing. Same thing when a person loses all his money. He left with nothing, completely poor. Or when he loses his eyesight, when he doesn't see, he is in the dark. He's also considered dead. Or someone that doesn't have children. Well, he. Well, one day he dies and his genealogy finished. So basically it's, it's dying right here. So the Gemara brings a list of people that consider like dead. Not that they are dead, but they're like dead. Why? I once saw a beautiful explanation to that. Isn't it insulting to say to someone blind that you consider like dead? Or someone who unfortunately couldn't have children, whether he couldn't get married, or he got married and his wife couldn't have kids, or someone that lost all his money, not only is upset, now you come and tell him, you know, by the way, you count like, the de like a dead person, according to the Gemara. So I saw a beautiful explanation. Why the Chachamim call those four kinds of people dead? Leprosy, poverty, blindness, and no children. Why those four are considered dead? The answer is because they don't have the ability to benefit the world. They don't have the ability to do chesed to people. They don't have the ability to do charity. They don't have the ability to teach Torah. They are basically, it's like a bird that you cut the wings. It loses its purpose. Not chas v'shalom that they're dead. But a blind person obviously cannot benefit the world as he used to. Someone who used to have money and now you took away all his money. He can't give a dollar to charity. He's considered like dead. Someone who doesn't have children to benefit. What good is all his money and everything he has? In the end, he has nobody to benefit. And someone with leprosy is in isolation. Nobody comes near him, so he cannot contribute anything to the world. That's why the Chachamim call those four kinds of people considered like dead. So when the king, Pharaoh, had leprosy, this evil advisor, Bilam, he had three advisors. Who were the three advisors? Job, Yitro, Jetro, and Bilam. Job and Jetro, they were righteous people. Righteous, righteous goyim. And this was, was, this Bilam was a wicked goy. Greedy, very greedy, has a very large jealousy, greedy for money, greedy for honor, for fame, has terrible personality, living with his own donkey as a husband and wife. What else do you expect from a person? Which is, by the way, a very big sin for Gentiles as well. It's against the seven laws of Noah. And it's death penalty. So someone like that obviously is far away from being righteous. But in the time when the Pharaoh saw that he has leprosy, he gave him an advice. Kill all the Jewish kids, slaughter them, fill up the bat with their blood, go into the blood, he will take away your leprosy. That's his advice. Later, when he asked about to kill the Jewish babies, Bilam, of course, said you should do it. 
And Iov, uh, Iov was silent, didn't say anything. Don't, he didn't say kill them, he didn't say don't kill them. And Jethro, Itro ran away because he didn't want to, he didn't want to, you know, be, didn't want to give him an answer, so he ran away. In the end, he got, he converted, and uh, what's his name? And Yov uh, got terrible suffering for not stopping him. And Bilam, his, his end was that the sword was stuck into his stomach and killed him. Just Mida Keneged Mida. He said to slaughter them, he was slaughtered. Yov, that didn't stop the genocide, went into horrible suffering. His children died, uh, lost all his money and friends, got sick, all kinds of problems. And Itro came up to glory. You know, he was the, the Pope, the head of the Avodah Zarah, and all of a sudden he became Baal Tshuva, converted to Judaism, and his daughter married the most important person in the history of the world, Moshe Rabbeinu, and one chapter in the Torah is named after him. We have to ask, but there's also one parasha named after Balak. Parashat Balak. Maybe Parashat Itro. Itro was righteous. <laughs> it's very nice that one chapter in the Torah is named after a Baal Tshuva, convert, the father-in-law of Moshe Rabbeinu. But how do you justify that there's one chapter named after this evil Nazi named Balak? I wants to hire Bilam to curse the Jewish nation. They should all die, or some of them. Why would you call a parasha after him? The Gemara said that because of 42 sacrifices that he did for Hashem, who came out of him? Ruta Moavia, Ruth, the grandmother of King David. And technically, believe it or not, from this field named Balak, the Mashiach came. <laughs> if you really think about it, a few generations later, 300 years later, Ruth was born. And she was from the nation of Moab, and he's Balak Melech Moab. And then she converted, married Boaz, the head of the Sanhedrin, they had a son Oved, and then two more generations after, who was born? King David. King David was born, and uh, as a result of that, you know, later on, the Mashiach came from them. Baruch Hashem. Top. Let's see some of the interesting things about this parasha that we can learn for our everyday life. He sends messengers to Bilam. The Gemara says there are two kinds of people. People that deserve to be the student of Bilam and people that deserve to be the student of Avraham Avinu, Abraham. Ravovadia Bartenura, 500 years ago, in his commentary on the Mishnah, this is what he writes. Anshei Damim, Right? There is a verse speaking about people that have bloods on their hands. Anshe damim, right? Umirma lo yechetsu yemehem. Vani eftach bach. There's a verse in Teilim, uh, chapter uh, 55. And uh, also it comes in uh, Masechet Avot. Anshedamim, people that have bloods on their hands, and also deceivers, they will not live long life. Their life should be shortened 
And David Amelech said to Hashem, they should die young, and I, I should have confidence in you. Anshe Damim, the Gemara say, the Ravovad Yami Bartenura explained, who is Anshe Damim? Bilam. If Bilam is one person, why you say Anshe? Anshe means plural, more than one. You should say Ish Damim, a man of blood. Why you say Anshe? The answer is, Bilam is a reincarnation of whom? This Bilam already came to the world before. Who was he? Lavan. Lavan Arami. Remember, Lavan Arami was on the way to kill Yaakov after Yaakov left with the two daughters of Lavan, Rachel and Leah. He's chasing him angry that he stole his god, his idol and took away all his sheep, you know, after 20 years that he took advantage on him, Hashem had to interfere with his plan and warn him not to touch Yaakov. This is what we say in the Agada of Pesach, Bikesh Lavan la'akor et akol. Lavan wanted to cut everything, meaning to leave no memory of Yaakov. So it's very interesting that Hashem saw that there's a real danger to, to Yaakov and he had to do something he doesn't like to do. Last week's lecture on Tuesday, I spoke about two things that God does not like to do. One is to interfere with people's free will. Someone made a decision to do something, whether it's good, whether it's bad, Hashem does not like to interfere with his choice. Why? Because a person is in a test. When you're in a test, the teacher doesn't tell you if you answered right or wrong. Only after the test you'll find out the results. But in the middle, you ask your teacher to give you a hint. Is it A, B, C, or D? Is, if I do C, what is it? I don't know. Oh, so it's probably A. I don't know. He doesn't tell you. If he will tell you, yeah, yeah, B is right, what's the point of the test? So therefore, you are on your own and you have to make the right choice. The second thing Hashem hates to do is to change the laws of nature for an individual. Now he has to change the laws of nature to save someone's life or to prevent a tragedy in general. If the person is worthy, is a big tzaddik, like Nachum Mishgamzu, Avraham Avinu, Rabbi Akiva, people like this, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is willing to make a clear miracle for them. Like Avraham, Nimrod threw him into the furnace. He didn't get burned. It's against the law of nature. Nachum Mishgamzu is under a house that is about to fall any day. For years the house is not falling. The second they pulled him out of the house, the entire house collapsed. Why? Hashem was interfering with the laws of nature and keeping a broken house standing for years that the tzaddik will not get hurt. Why? He was blind, no hands, no legs, laying in bed. If the, the, the building will fall on his head, he's going to die instantly. So for him, Hashem was willing to make miracles, as the Gemara described before, with the robbers and the whole story. David HaMelech, Hashem is willing to do a, a special miracle for him. But for ordinary people, it's not that easy to get a clear miracle to interfere with the law of nature, right? Uh, some, even in our days, sometimes you have clear miracles. 
You can see that. According to the law of nature, a person should have died, but for whatever reason, didn't die. I remember when the Twin Towers collapsed, one person jumped from the 80th floor and survived. How many people can jump from the 80th floor and survive? That's a clear miracle. The chance that something like this will happen is not even one to a million or to a billion. I don't know how to rate it. Somehow he survived. Everybody else died from much lower floors that they jumped. But this person, for some reason, survived somehow. So there are sometimes clear miracles. You don't know why and Hashem decide when and to whom to do it. But obviously he doesn't like to do it. So over here, you know, the, the Rav Ovadia Mibartenura explained this verse on the Tehilim that Anshe Damim, who is Anshe Damim? It's based on the words of the Arizal, Lavan Arami is reincarnation of Bilam Arasha. And because of that we call them Anshe Damim. In both life, their plan was to kill and they didn't care, they just went for uh, actual genocide. So now we understand why the Pasuk is speaking in plural. We have to understand the Pasuk says, Balak ben Tzipor, his father is Tzipor, king of Moab. Why do you have to say king of Moab? We already knew it from the verses before. Why you have to now tell me? It's like saying uh, the name of the President of the United States and you say the President of the United States. What for? We know who he is. What is the point in the Torah? You don't have an extra word for nothing. So Bilam was afraid that Akadosh Baruch Hu is going to get very angry at him for going with him. They come to take him to Balak in order for him to curse the Jewish nation. The Gemara, the Gemara explains that there is one minute per day for 24 hours that the judgment of Hashem rises to the highest. There's real anger at the world, Midat Adin. Midat Adin. The judgment is very strict at that minute. One minute per 24 hours. No one knows to aim to that minute. When is it exactly? 9 p.m., 905, 907, 10, 10.30. When is it? When is this moment of judgment? Probably it's at night when the stars begin to come out. Between sunset and midnight. Between sunset and midnight. The question is, it's, we're talking here about about six hours approximately. So the question is, when exactly is that moment of Midat Adin, of the judgment? Only Bilam knew. He knew to aim to that minute, and if he would curse at that minute, that would be very bad for the Jewish nation. Why? Apparently curses have power. So, the Gemara said that HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to the Jewish nation, you have to thank me a lot that all these days that Bilam was trying to curse you, I actually canceled that minute of judgment. That he won't be able to penetrate his curse in that particular time that Midat Adin controlled the world. So we see Rabotai that there are times of mercy and there are times of judgment. And if the curse comes on a time of judgment, it's much worse than when it comes in a time of mercy. So the question is, 
Bilam was afraid that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is going to get very angry at him that he's about to go with the messengers of Balak and curse the chosen people. So he said to Hashem, remember, these are the messengers of Balak, the king of Moab. Meaning, I want to remind you, I don't really have that much of a choice. Because if a king asks me to come and I won't come, what's going to be? He's going to kill me. So, therefore, you yourself know that there are two reasons why I should go. Because it's the king of Moab. So, if I don't go, he'll kill me. Or, if I go, anyway, there's nothing I can do without your consent. Because the heart of the kings is in your hand anyway. So if he decided to hire me to curse the Jewish people, I understand that the Jewish people deserve a punishment. Because without your consent, it could never happen. So what do you want from me? He is the king of Moab. There's no extra word in the Torah. If, Balak, if Bilam say, I have no choice, I have to go because he's the king of Moab, and with king you don't mess around, and if the king called me, that means you agreed. Because even though you don't, you don't interfere with the free will of individuals, you always control the heart of the king. The heart of the kings in the hand of Hashem. There is a verse like this. Lev melachim beyad Hashem. Meaning the free will of an individual Hashem does not interfere with. You want to go here or you want to go there? Well, what happened if you're the President of the United States? What happened if you're the Prime Minister of Israel? What happened if you're the King of Syria or Egypt or Saudi Arabia? There are millions of people under your control. Therefore, if Hashem sees that the King is about to make a mistake, Hashem can interfere with the free will of the leader at any given moment. When it comes to his own choices, if he should put filin or not, the Prime Minister of Israel, he has a free will. If he should give tzedakah or not, he has a free will. If he should go to shul or not, he has his free will. But if he's about to make a decision that connects to the entire nation, and the decision is against the will of Hashem, what happened in that case? Hashem can either stop it or can promote it, depend on how much Hashem wants it. So what do we see? A perfect example for that is that Prime Minister of Israel, Ariel Sharon, was a very righty leader all his life, for 50 years. Very anti-Palestinian, very anti-terrorism, a big warrior. He fought in Lebanon against Hezbollah and against PLO and against all these Nazis. And what happened the last year or two of his life? became the biggest lefty and made a huge damage to Israel. He decided to give the Hamas the entire area of Gush Katif, cities full of houses, full of synagogues, full of farms, billions of dollars of property, and take out thousands of Jews out of their homes, and burn synagogues, and burn homes, and in, a, in 10 wars, we wouldn't have such a damage, what he did. And the, the worst is that he, he gave it to them for nothing in return. They give nothing in return, this murderer, mass murderer. From there, they shoot at us now, rockets. And everybody told them, don't be a fool. 
They're gonna now, until now they were shooting from far. Now they're gonna be right around the corner. They will shoot at Tel Aviv, they'll shoot at Ashdod and Ashkelon. And it's exactly what they do. Just yesterday they shot again. And he became blind. Someone that was almost like Rav Meir Kahana in his opinions and ideology, very strong right, all of a sudden became a trader. Why? Because Hashem made him. It's not possible. There's two options over here. One is Hashem decreed on him because we had to get a punishment and to lose this territory. Second option is that he got a lot of bribe from the Americans or from the Arabs or from both. That's also possible. Leaders are very corrupted today. Don't expect any righteous leaders to do what's good for their country. They usually do what's good for their own pocket. And if somebody called him at that time and said, Mr. Sharon, let it go. We'll put $50 million in an offshore account. We open an account, tell us the numbers, we'll send you the money, sign the paper. That's also possible. I won't be shocked at all if that was the case. But one thing we know, that if it happened, that means Hashem wanted it. The technical aspect, how it was happened, if someone bribed him or Hashem had to interfere with his free will, that's not so relevant. The bottom line is that if it happened, there was a decision of Hashem. If Hashem didn't want all these synagogues to fall apart and all these Jews to leave their territory, by the way, some of them until today don't have a home. They put them in hotels and they neglected them. They never gave them a replacement home. Some of them had uh, until today a trauma from being ch children and losing their home and the police came by force, took them out of their property. So it's, it's horrible videos. You see what they did to them. And this was one of the biggest tragedies since we became a state. And what do you see? That the, hand, the heart of the leader is in the hand of Hashem. It's written, Something is not uh, making sense here. First, Hashem said to Bilam, don't dare to go with them. Then, Bilam said to them, stay overnight, I see what Hashem wants from me. And then Hashem said, okay, you want to go? Go. But don't dare to curse them. You only speak what I tell you to do. What's going on here? I don't get it. If you told him not to go, stick to what you say. I don't allow you to go. That's it. You go, I'll kill you. Finish. He will never dare to go. He doesn't want to die. What does it mean, don't go? And all of a sudden, a few minutes later, okay, you want to go? Fine, you can go. But don't dare to talk. If you already interfere with his free will, right, let him do whatever he want. If you don't want to interfere with his free will, right, if you don't want to interfere with his free will, he can go and do whatever he wants. He can go, he cannot go, he can curse, he cannot curse. It's up to him. If you already interfere with his free will, just tell him not to go. What does it mean you 50% surrender to him? Okay, I allow you to go, but I don't allow you to curse. Plus, if, if you already cancel the Midat Adin, you're not hungry now, there's no Midat Adin, what do you care? Let him curse until tomorrow. What? Something contradicting, contradicting here. If Hashem cancelled the Midat Adin, why is he worried that Bilam will go or not? Or cares or not? Who cares? We have to understand what's going on over here. 
a few good questions about what's going on. ויאמר השם אל בלעם, לא תלך עמהם, do not go with them, לא תאור את העם כי ברוך הוא. You can curse the nation because the nation is already blessed from before. Someone that is blessed, the curse cannot go on him. Someone that is cursed, the blessing cannot go on him. This is what Abraham said to his servant Eliezer, which was a very righteous Gentile. By the way, Eliezer is one of the ten people who went to heaven with his body. Ten people in history never actually die a regular death. Eliezer Eved Avram, this is how righteous he was. One of the most righteous people ever live is Eliezer Eved Avram. Eliezer had a daughter. His dream was to marry his daughter to Avram's son Yitzchak. And Avram told him, as much as I love you, as much as I trust you, as much as your girl is a great girl, a blessed cannot get married to a cursed. You are from the land of Canaan, Evet Knani. Canaan is cursed by Noah. Noah, one of the righteous people in history, put a curse on Canaan. Canaan was the fourth son of Ham. Ham was the third son of Noah, the most wicked one. Noah had Shem, the father of the Jews. If you, if you hate Jews, they call you anti-Semite. Or in Hebrew, anti-Shemi. Why? Because we are the children of Shem, the righteous son of Noah. Then you have the Ephet. Wasn't righteous, but wasn't so wicked like Ham. Who is Ephet? In English, is Jeff. What does it mean, Yefet? Yefet comes from the word Yofi, beauty. Who are the children of Yefet? All the Europeans. Russians, Ukrainians, French, Italians, all British, all the Europeans, and include Americans that came from Europe. They're all children of Yefet. They got the beauty, the nice colors, all kinds of things. Who is Ham? The people from Africa, all the people from Africa that suffered slavery and other problems in life. Ham means in Hebrew hot, where it's very hot. Ham went to the area of Africa. Yefet went to Europe, and Shem is in the Middle East. Who came from Shem? The Jews and the Arabs. The Arabs also from, the, from, the, from Shem. So, so, Ham had four sons, right? Who were their sons? Mitzrayim, Put, Knan, and... Sidon. Uh, Sidon? Huh? No, not Sidon. Huh? No, Sin is it's later. Sin was already a grandson. Uh, put, put, oh, put, Kush, Mitzrayim, and Knan. Put, Kush, Mitzrayim, and Knan. Knan was the fourth son. Knan is the goyim that lived in the Holy Land before the Jews arrived. Four years after they came out of Egypt, there were seven nations in Israel. The main one was the Knanim. That's why the Torah called it Eretz Knan. The land of Canaan. Canaan was the fourth son of Ham, meaning the grandson of Noah. When Noah woke up, 
and found out that his son castrated him. Castrated him. Castrated him. Sorry. Castrated him. He put a curse on Knan. Why not about Ham? The reason is because Ham saw that he already have two brothers and they have to share the inheritance. Once Noah will die, he has to divide how much he has between three sons. Noah had plans to have more children. So every child that is born, my share is becoming smaller. That's what Ham thought. So his son, Knan, the fourth one, is the one who gave him the call. And he said, come, see, grandpa is drunk, he drank wine, and he's totally naked in his, in his tent. And when he saw him like this, that he unable to protect himself, he castrated him and made him unable to have more kids. When Noah woke up and he found out what happened to him, he didn't curse Ham. He cursed his first, fourth son, meaning everything in a Torah is measure for measure. You cause me not to be able to have a fourth son, right? I have three. Because of you, I won't have the fourth. You already have a fourth son, but you're not going to enjoy from him. Why? Because right now I'm putting a curse on him for two reasons. Why is measure for measure? I don't have a fourth one. You will not have a fourth one. Plus, he's the one who called you to begin with. Without him, none of that would have happened. So I'm putting a curse on these people that call Knan. And Eliezer was one of the Knanim. And he was the servant of Abraham. And he was anxious to marry his daughter to Yitzhak. But Abraham told him, a blessed and a cursed cannot marry together. We find later on when... Uh, Abraham sent Eliezer to find a wife for Yitzhak. He warned him, swear to me that you will not marry my son Yitzhak with any woman from Canaan. I do not want anyone from those Bnota Knani. Meaning this nation is cursed. Where are they? All the people, the children of Ham, as I say, they all went to Africa area. And slavery and all of that is a result of the curse that Noah put on Ham. So now, Hashem said to Bilam, do not go with them and do not curse the nation of Israel. Why? Because it's a blessed nation. You cannot put a curse on a blessed nation. Right? The Gemara says, in Masechet Brachot, page 7, that the Chachamim writes that Bilam Yodea Da'at Elyon. He has a special ability that other Goim do not have. He knows exactly the time where Hashem is angry, that he can push his scales right there. So we have, a, we, have a, we have to ask a question. If the power of Bilam is to curse when Hashem is angry and Hashem didn't get angry, why HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to Bilam, do not curse? What do you care? Let him speak until tomorrow. Let him curse. Let him curse. Give him a punishment for trying to curse. And the curse will not make any effect. Or if Hashem wants to allow him to curse, why he did not get angry in all these days? And one of the two should be enough. The answer, Abotai, is... 
that the curse of Bilam could have been so severe that it has shalom can kill a lot of people. So Hashem did not get angry for Bilam because in case he's going to curse, the, the curse is actually going to make an impact. But even when Hashem didn't get angry, the curse can still make a damage. Maybe not that, but it can still work. Because even a curse, when it's not the judgment moment, can also make a damage. Not as much, but can still make a damage. So that's why Hashem eliminated the Midat Adin, the judgment, all this entire time. So Bilam answered, Bilam answered to them, if Balak will give me all the gold and silver in the world, everything, no, not in the world, is in, in his entire position, whatever he owned, all the gold and all the silver, he's a king, he's very rich, I cannot go against the order of God. Whether it's a small, whether it's big, doesn't matter. Rashi writes, if Balak will empty everything he has, I still will not come and curse. You know, when, uh, when somebody comes to do a job, your best friend, let's say, and he's embarrassed to ask for money, normally he will charge, uh, I don't know, let's say $1,000 for the job. So he doesn't want to take money. The only way to take money is to hint to you. No, no, believe me, even if you give me $3,000, I'm not going to take. <laughs> what do you mean? It's only 1000 Believe me, he, you know, jobs like this, I easily charge 3000 But even if you give me five, I'm not going to take. You read in between the lines. When he comes to the messenger and says, if Balak will give me all the gold he has and the silver, I still cannot go against Hashem. Meaning, if one day it will happen, that's my fee. Okay, we got that. From here the Chachamim learned that he's a very greedy person. He's after money. That's all he cares about. But we have a problem. The Gemara brings a story that there was a holy rabbi, his name Rabbi Yossi Bar Kisma. This is in Masechet Avot, page, uh, chapter 6. The ninth Mishnah in chapter 6. One time Rabbi Yossi Bar Kisma met a, a rich person on a street. And he asked him, Rabbi, would you agree to move to our town? to teach us Torah, we need someone to come and teach us Torah. Rav Yossi Bar Kisma told him, the rich man told him, would you agree to come if you would come, I will pay you any amount of money you want. Here is an open check. You fill up the amount. We need a holy rabbi to come. So now the, the question is, what's the difference between the holy rabbi Yossi Bar Kisma to Bilam? They both technically use the same phrase. Bilam said to the messengers, if you give me all the gold of the silver that Balak has, I will still not go against the word of God. Rabbi Yossi Bar Kisma answered to this guy, if you give me all the gold and the silver in the world, I cannot come to live in a place that does not have Torah there. 
Meaning I'm not going to move my family to a place with no yeshiva, place with bad influence, place that is not full of Talmidei uh, Chachamim. For any amount of gold and silver. Let's say, let's see who is clever here to tell me the difference between what Bilam said and what Rav Yossi Bar Kisma said. Why it's not the same? One word about himself, one word about his future. Both of them technically spoke about themselves. Bilam said, if you give me all the gold and the silver that Balak have, I cannot do it. And Rav Yossi Bar Kisma also said to him, if you give me all the gold and the silver in the world, I still cannot do it because I won't move to a place that doesn't have Torah. I'm sorry. The answer is, Balak, nobody talked to him about the fee yet. Nobody talked to him about how much he's going to get, if he's going to get anything. The king can order him to come by force with a sword to his, head, to his neck. Nobody ever told him, we're going to give you, we're going to pay you, nothing. He's already requiring a payment. If it will ever happen, I want to prepare you. It's not going to be cheap. Even all the gold and the silver cannot get me to do it. Rav Yossi is the exact opposite. The rich man already told him, we're going to give you any amount of money you want. As replying to this man, he said to him, even if you give me all the gold and the silver in the world, which is not realistic, where are you going to find all the gold in the world? It was just a form of speech. I still will not move to a place of Torah. This is after the rich man told him, I'm going to pay you big time. So please don't pay me. Please don't do me any favor. Any amount you give me will not move me to live in a place without Torah. Bilam, nobody offered him anything. He is the one who makes the suggestion. You want me to do it? I can't. But you should know that even if you give me all the gold, I still cannot do it. One other answer <laughs> is uh, <laughs> according to Bilam, what's the most important thing in life? And according to Rav Yossi Bar Kisma, what's the most important thing in life? What do you understand from both conversations? According to Bilam, what is the most important thing in his eyes? What is it? Gold and silver. Material. Money. Wealth. Why? Because he's saying, even if you give me everything, meaning that's what he thinks about. According to Rav Yossi Bar Kisma, what's the most important thing in life? Torah. <laughs> Any amount of money will not buy me a day to live in a place without Torah. According to Bilam, if it will ever happen, I want a lot of money for it. I'm not coming to do it voluntarily. So that's the difference between the tzaddik and the rasha. Now, we, we have to understand, it's written, God came to Bilam in the middle of the night. And say, if those people came to call you, go with him. But don't dare to curse. The question is, Rabotai, the angel of Hashem say to Bilam, go with the people. What's the difference in Hebrew between the word imam and itam? 
There's two ways to speak. People came to call you, your friends. So your mother, she has to give you permission to go play with them or not. She can say, Lech itam, or she can say, Lech imam. Now I already prepare you in advance that if you ask any Israeli, include professor to, uh, to Hebrew language, what's the difference between itam and imam, no one would know. No one would know. Only scholars of Torah knows. The professors, they won't know. They will tell you it's a similar word. Similar word. The question is, who knows what's the difference between lech itam and lech imam? What is the difference? There's a big difference between im, imam, or itam. Imam. I'll tell you that you, you think you know the difference? Rakasha, let's hear. Imam is to go with them and Imam is to go amongst them. What's the difference with them and amongst them? What's the difference? But amongst them, with them is like, Let me save you the headache. Itam, it's when you go with someone, but each one of you has a different agenda. They go for one purpose, and you go for a different person. They go because they worry to die. The nation of Israel is a threat to them, so they're nervous. And you go for money. Two different causes. You go to make money, and they go hoping they get saved from the Jewish nation. That's called Itam. Meaning each one has a different reason. Imam is when both of you go for the same cause. Now, when Hashem came to Bilam, He said to him, if these people came to call you, kum lech itam. Get up and lech itam. Go with them, but not for the same reason they are going. You go for a different reason, meaning I have a plan that your curses will turn into blessing. They have in mind to get a curse out of your mouth. My plan is to get a blessing out of your mouth. Do not go imam, go itam. Remember this in the Torah. Every time you see imo, means together. I'll give you an example. In the beginning, he told him, do not go, lo yelech imam do not go for the same reason. But when Hashem saw that he's so anxious to go, he said, okay, you want to go? Bederech sh'adam rotze lilech molichim oto. I don't interfere with your free will. You want to go make money? It's for personal reasons? Okay, so to interfere with your free will, if to go or not to go, I don't want. But to allow you to curse the Jewish nation, that's already other people are involved here. This I do not allow. Do not open your mouth unless I show you and instruct you otherwise. Tov, so he's going with Itam. Same thing. With Avraham Avinu. Avraham Avinu takes Yitzchak to the Akedah. Who goes with him? The boys. One of them is Ishmael. 
So they had the donkey. So he want Ishmael to stand, to sit down, down the Moriah mountain and watch the donkey. How did Avram say, Shvu lachem po im achamor. Shvu lachem po im achamor. Vani v'anar nelchat ko. And me and the boy will go to the Moriah mountain. If you remember one time I made a lecture, the word ko is 25 in numeric value. 25. Half is 20. A is 5. The world has three levels. Level zero, like they used to say ground zero. Level zero, that's the earth. Level 50, that's the 50th gate of heaven, in heaven. The highest level. And half and half. Half heaven, half earth. Where is this half and half? Jerusalem. Where in Jerusalem? The holy temple. This is the mountain when Hashem was revealed to Yaakov in a dream that he had. This is the mountain when Avraham tied Yitzchak for the Akedah. And this is the mountain when King Solomon built the temple. And that's where the Arab, the Muslims, lay there. 1600 years after King Solomon came to build their mosque over there after they read in a Torah that it's written that this is the gate to heaven. And this is the meaning of the dream that Yaakov had that he saw angels going up and down the ladder, the ladder. And it's written in the Torah that the legs of the ladder is on earth, but the top of it is in heaven. Meaning angels are going up and down. So where is Ko? Ko is half heaven, half earth. It's not fully earth like the rest of the world, which is ground zero. It's 25. It's not 50, but it's not zero. It's right in the middle. Top. So the question is, Avram said to them, you sit here with the donkey and me and the boy will go to Ko. Where is Ko? The gate to heaven. That's a whole different place. The mountain. This mountain, by the way, even though it was already blessed, Hashem gave Yaakov the blessing there, and Avraham had the Akedah over there, King David, 300 years later, actually 400 years later, bought this mountain from a Goy that owned the real estate there. What was his name? Arvana Ayevusi. Remember, there were, there were seven nations in Israel. Amorites, Knaanim, Yevusi, Chivi, Girgashi. Seven cursed nations. All of them are cursed nations. So, one of the nations were the Yevusi. And there was a very rich man among these Goyim. His name was Arvana Yevusi. Arvana from the nation of the Yevusi. He owned the land. So just like Avraham bought the Me'arat HaMachpelah from Ephron HaChiti, that's one of the nations that were there. So in Hebron, that's where the Chitim used to be. One rich man was Ephron, he owned a lot of property. Avraham bought the Me'arat HaMachpelah from him for 400 coins. 
Here David Amelech came to Arvana Yevusi and he said to him, I would like to buy this mountain, meaning that's where we're going to build the temple. David Amelech had in mind that he should build a house for God. Later Hashem came to Nathan the prophet and told him David cannot build the, the, the temple because he killed people in a war. Even though all these people were wicked people and there was mitzvah to kill them. But since his hands spilled blood, they cannot build the temple. So what happened later on? He prepared the foundation. He cleared all the rocks, cleared, made the place nice. And King Solomon came and built the place. That's why I once told you the story that there was a big rock there and he needed to remove it. And the shepherds told him, don't move that rock. This rock is blocking the spring water. If you move it, all the springs water will shoot up and will flood the entire area. Everyone here will die. And he moved it. And water started to come out and the whole place was started to get flooded. And that's when David saw that is a very serious risk. And he said, anyone who knows the halacha, am I, allowed, am I allowed to write the name of God on a cloth like a mezuzah? Throw it into the water and bring the water down, but I will erase the name of God, which is a big sin. But am I, it, am I allowed to do it for the sake of the pikuach nefesh of all the people or not allowed? And nobody answered. And David knew that Achitofel, which knew a lot of Torah but was a very wicked person, he, does, he knows the answer but he on purpose doesn't say. He wants to get David into trouble. And David say, anyone who knows the answer and does not say, a curse should be on him if he won't say. And he got very nervous because he know the curse of David can destroy him. So immediately he told him, you're allowed to write the name of God and you're allowed to throw it into the water and you'll learn it from Kalva Homer, needless to say. Same way Hashem is willing to erase his name to make peace between husband and wife if the husband suspects his wife. Needless to say, to erase the name of God, to save the life of thousands of people and to destroy Jerusalem. Right away, David wrote the name, he threw it into the water, the water came down, too much. Too much! Now it's going to be a drought, no water to drink, in the wells. Everything got dry. That's when he started to write the 15 Shir Lama'alot that we have in Psalms, in Tehillim. 15. The water went down 16,000 amma, which is 8 kilometers below the ocean level. Just to give you an idea, the, the Dead Sea in Israel, it's the lowest place in the world. How, how low it is? 400 meters under the ocean level. 400 meters. 400 meters is 1,200 feet. 1,200 feet below the zero level. Here we had 8 kilometers. It's 24,000 feet. Not 1,200, 24,000. Like 20 times more. That means there was a complete drought. Everyone would die out of thirst. That's when he actually started to write the 15 Shir Lamaalot. The Gemara says every Shir Lamaalot he finished. The water came up 1,000 amma. 
which is 500 meter, which is 1500 feet, started to go higher and higher and higher they, until they balance almost in a zero level. 15 shir lamaalot, why 15 and not 16? Because it's numeric value, the name of God, Yud and Hey. So 15 shir lamaalot. So this is the story. David Amelech Arvana wanted to donate the property to David for free. Take it. If you want to do something good over there, I'm giving you the property for free. By the way, this is the most expensive real estate in the whole world today. There's no place in the world that costs more money than the Moriah Mountain. If you had to buy it, you come to the Arabs and say to them, listen, we're kicking you out of here unless you're going to pay us $20 billion for this 400 square meter. $20 billion. What do you think would happen? If they have no choice, they can't win it in a war, they would pay $200 billion, not $20 billion. Any amount of money, same thing with the Jews. If it was up to us, if Hashem will allow us, I mean, right now we're not allowed to go there until we will build the third temple. But if Hashem would say to the Jews, start with the fundraising, go and buy this property, and the price would be 20 billion or 50 billion or 100 billion, we would buy it. We have no choice. There's no other place in the world that people will pay so much money to buy. And this guy wanted to give it to David for free. And David said, please, no, I don't want favors. Tell me how much and I'll pay you the full price. I don't want discounts. Why? First of all, you have to be careful who you take donations from. This is an idol worshiper. You don't want him to have the merit of Bet HaMikdash. Second, something that you get for free or for a discount doesn't have the same holiness. I'll give you an example. The Ari Kadosh, when he used to go and buy Arbaat Aminim, Lulav, Etrog, Adas, and Arava, in the market of Tzfat, he used to take the money, if after he chose the best ones, he never asked how much. He, hold, he held the money in his hand and he asked the owner of the, of the booth, take how much I owe you. I don't want to know and I don't want to argue. Whatever it is, 200, 300 dollars, 500, take how much I owe you. And he would take and that's it. If you argue, ah, I'll tell you what, you want $200 for this drug, I'll give you 150 He agreed, okay, for you, 150 Take three sets, instead of 200 each, 150 No problem, it's still yours, you still did the mitzvah, but it's not in the same level. The, lower, the level of holiness is much lower. Why? Because the Satan has a, a bite in it. Every mitzvah that you did with Ayn Tzara, your eye was narrow, meaning not generous, you eating your heart that it cost you money. I see it when I bring tefillin and mezuzot from Israel. I bring the best tefillin in the world and the highest level mezuzot and less than half a price from any store here, much less. There's nothing to compare, not the level and not the price. But you still have rich people that come and argue. 
you can't take, you can't do it twenty dollars cheaper. When he buys his Mercedes, he pay forty percent above sticker. Forty percent above. Why the dealers kill everyone? People, you know, they must have the car. No argument. He, he doesn't eat his heart that instead of 120,000, he pay 170. It doesn't break your heart to burn $50,000 for this stupid car? No, it doesn't burn his heart. Why? The Satan helps him out, make him strong. You're the king on the road. Everyone looks at you. Everyone gives you compliment. Oh, I know someone who works in cash advance. Young boy, in his 20s. He drives a nice car. Believe me, nice car. But he wants to get a Mercedes now. I told him, don't be a fool. Why burning almost $2,500 a month on this stupid lease and insurance? He said to me, doesn't make sense to you that I have people work under me and they have better car than me, I'm the boss? So I told him, so it's all a show off. In the beginning, he was trying to hide. No, what does it have to do with show-off? I want a nice car. What, my employees, I'm paying them commission on the deals and they drive a better car than me. How does it look? I say, who cares how does it look? What do you think, they're going to quit on you because your car is a little bit less than theirs? Give me enough with this nonsense. Until, you know, when people get angry, the truth comes out. Okay, okay, so it's a show-off. So what's wrong with the show-off? Shof, ah, shof, it's all sitracha. Stupidity. So when it comes to houses and cars and the Rolex watch, they pay and they feel great. But when it comes to tefillin and mezuzot and arbat aminim and talit and everything that is for the sake of holiness, Right, the way the Satan comes, be careful from this rabbi. He make millions on you. Look, don't, be careful, don't pay, go shop around. <laughs> it reminds me of a case, it happens about a month and a half ago. One guy from, I think he's from Queens of Brooklyn, his cousin, said to me, I want to get my... Uh, I want to get my cousin Tfilin. He already got two pairs from you in the past. Now he wants to get one more. I mean, I guess one of his kids has bar mitzvah. So I told him, okay, that's the price. He said, oh, but he said that last time he paid less. I said, yeah, but everything now became in Israel double. After COVID, everything goes up to the sky. Believe me, it's still less than half the price you find anywhere. No, no, he doesn't want it. Two weeks went by, he calls me, where are you? I have to get it. I said, why? He said, he went to every store in New York. <laughs> and everywhere it was more than double. And for nothing special. The store said to him, that's the minimum price and it's nothing modar. Ordinary kosher. I said to him, my word was not good enough for you? That you had to go all over New York? If I tell you that you're not going to find something like this anywhere in the world for this price. <laughs> The store, they have to pay rent, and employees, and advertisement, and insurance, and telephone bill, and electric bill, and taxes, and all kinds of other expenses. That's going into the price. What do you think? 
go and find a today Ashkenazi pair of tefillin in the highest level. They're going to tell you seven, eight thousand dollars. Yeah, what used to be four, now it's doubled. What used to be two, now it's four. That's what's going on today. Everything goes great, just like us. We used to, I used to fill up the car for 20-something dollars, now it's 80. That's it. That's the reality Hashem put us in. The war with Ukraine, the COVID, inflation, new world. Bottom line, Rabotai, if you argue about something that has holiness in it, the Sitra Achra, the Satan, has permission to suck from this mitzvah. Same thing if you do a mitzvah for show off. Oh, we're gonna make you Sheva Brachot. Very nice mitzvah. Sheva Brachot can be $2,000. If you have 30, 40 people, you have to buy fish, meat, I don't know, whatever they buy, sushi, it's expensive. What's the purpose of doing it? To help the Chatan and Kala? Or that people will see your new home? and will be impressed by your, the new art that you hang on the wall. Or that everyone will praise you for the wonderful, delicious food that you made. If you do it for the pride, the Satan has permission to suck from this mitzvah. That's how he lives. All the sitracha. If you did it 100% for the sake of heaven, the Satan cannot touch this mitzvah. It's pure. Same thing over here, Rabotai. So, Avram said to them, to the boys, Shvu lachem po im achamor. That's why the Gemara say, Am adomele chamor. Chamor comes from the word chomer. Chomer means material. Material. The Arabs that came from Ishmael, that's when Avram told him, Ishmael, sit here with the donkey. What does it mean, im? Shvu lachem po im achamor. Him, meaning you are exactly like him. He only wants to eat and enjoy physical pleasure, and that's it. And you follow his path. That's why you cannot come with me to the holy mountain. It's written in the Torah. This was 2,000 years before Quran came to the world. 1400 years ago came Muhammad and made up a story that angel Jibril, some Arabs, their last name is Jibril, or first name, Jibril Rajub. Who is Jibril? Gabriel. English, it's Gabriel. In Arabic, Jibril. What's the real name? Gabriel. What does it mean, Gabriel? Gavri. What is Gavri? Gvura. Hashem gave me strength. He's one of the three angels of the Jewish nation. Who are the three angels? Gabriel, Michael, Raphael. They're all Bukharians. <laughs> the Bukharians love those names. Chachamim, smart. Why not? Good angels. Raphael. They also like Daniel. Baruch Hashem. Good, good. There are better names than this, by the way. Even though they are good names, but there are better names. What's the best name in Judaism? The best two names? Yosef and Eliyahu. There's other good names, Avraham, Yaakov, Israel, you know, other names, Ovadia. There's a list of good names, also for boys, also for girls, but today people are modern. 
they want Goish names. One person called his son Tom. Tom! I said, what is this? A Goish name, Tom. What, what is this? Is a Goy? No, Rabbi, Tom, with us. Tom means innocence. Yeah, right. Just like that fool who called his son Eli and five minutes later came, I meant Rabbi Eli from the Gemara. Yeah. Eli the Italian. Tov, <laughs> Rabotai. Let's move on. The Rambam, we're going to learn one interesting Rambam now about this verse. Okay, so now Bilam is on the way and the angel come with a sword and harassing his donkey. The donkey goes left, right, push his leg to the wall. Bilam doesn't understand. I live with this donkey as a husband and wife for years. The donkey never ever rebelled against me. What's going on over here? All of a sudden, Hashem opened up his eyes and he saw the angel with the sword. He got very scared. Why did you eat your donkey three times? Why? The Rambam is talking about a law in the Torah that you're not allowed to torture animals. You're not allowed to eat animals, you're not allowed to starve them, you're not allowed to torture them just for the sake of torture. The question is, if a person torture animals, is this a sin from the Torah or it's a rabbinical sin? Tsar ba'alechaim. The oraita or the rabbanan? Is this a decree that the Chachamim made that no one will torture his animals and everyone make sure they eat on time? Or it's actually a direct instruction from Hashem. Meaning that if you leave the house, you have to make sure someone watch your cat or fish or whatever you have. Make sure they give them food or the chickens. So, the Rambam writes, What the Gemara said, that to torture animals is a sin from the Torah. We are learning from Bilam hitting his donkey. That the angel came and said to him, why did you hit your donkey three times? If it wasn't a sin, what do you care about the donkey? Why did an angel come to talk to me about hitting the donkey? I guess it's important. I just broke the rule, the law. So we have a, a question to ask about the Rambam. The Rambam says from here we learn that to torture animals is a sin from the Torah. But the Gemara in Masechet Baba Metziah, page 32, the Gemara said that when you see the donkey of your friend collapse with a heavy weight, you have to run and help it, and that's a rabbinical obligation. So you have to decide. Is it from the Torah or it's a rabbinical? What is it? More than that, furthermore, Rambam himself in the book Mishneh Torah, in the laws of uh, murdering and life, the life and reserving life, the Rambam writes, the animal of a goy, if the, the animal belongs to a goy, but the weight of it belongs to a Jew. If the goy is walking the donkey to whatever he needs, so the Rambam is, is telling now, depend who, who is handling the, the animal, the goy or a Jew. 
Meaning the Torah says if you see the donkey of your brother collapse, you have an obligation to run and help. Gets dirty and help the donkey to get up. But if it's an animal that does not belong to your brother, if you want to help him, it's going to be big Kiddush Hashem. Beautiful. But we cannot punish you for not doing it. If you will see a Jew now, his donkey collapse and you don't help him, you will be punished for it because it's your brother. You cannot ignore your brother. If you see some stranger from a different nation, it will be very nice if you help him. But if you didn't help him, I cannot punish you for that because there's no obligation to do it. So, if that's the law by the Rambam, what do we learn from here? That torturing animals is from the Torah or Rabbanan? It's rabbinical. Because if it was from the Torah, who cares who owned the donkey? If the goal is not to make the donkey suffer, then it doesn't matter who owns the donkey, a Jew or non-Jew. Either way, you have to unhelp the donkey because it's a sin from the Torah to let the donkey suffer. But if it's not from the Torah, meaning the Chachamim say, the same Chachamim told you, you are only obligated to take care of the donkey of your brother. So the Rambam looks like he contradicts himself. In one place it says it's from the Torah, and in another book it says that it's rabbinical. So what is it? Now we're going to learn. The answer is, Tzar Ba'alei Chaim Doraita or the Rabbanan, it's only when it comes to upload and download. You have to put weight or to take weight on. But when you torture the animal with your hands, that's for sure the oraita. Let me explain. If you see the donkey collapse or not, to go and help the donkey of your brother, that's the, the mitzvah to help your brother is from the Torah. It's a clear verse in the Torah. But to avoid suffering from the donkey, it's rabbinical obligation. That's why the Chachamim made a difference between your brother and not your brother. But if you come and hit an animal, or you starve an animal, meaning you own it, and with your hands you torture the animal, like the kids that catch the cat and throw them on a wall, or one Arab who took a donkey and made him go on fire. If Chaz Shalom, a Jew, will do such a thing, that's obviously a sin from the Torah. Very severe sin. So what do we learn? When it's not in your hands, it's rabbinical. When it's with your hands, it's a sin from the Torah. Meaning if you torture the animal with your hands, such as starving it, or beating it up, or pushing an animal to fall, or anything, or wound an animal, or stab an animal, or electrocute an animal, this is all Tzar Ba'alechaim from the Torah. You will be punished by Hashem for breaking His rules. If you didn't help the weight on and off from the donkey, the torture of the donkey, it's an obligation from the Chachamim. That's why the Chachamim, they couldn't force you to start running and help the whole world. There's billions of people in the world. What, I'm going to run and help everyone I don't know? No. But my brother, I have an obligation. By the way, I tell you the secret behind this. Many of the things are much deeper than what you think. When you walk and you see a friend, or even your enemy, but a Jew, a Jew from town, in the old days they had horses and donkeys. So the donkey collapsed, and you ignore the donkey. The Torah says you're not allowed to ignore, you have to run and help. 
Why there is such an obligation by the Chachamim? Because if you have to worry about the donkey of your friend, needless to say that you have to worry about his soul. If the donkey of your friend is lost, right, and he's looking for it, you have to go and help him to find it. Why? It's your brother. How can you ignore your brother? Your brother is in trouble, he needs help. If the donkey of a Jew is lost, how much a donkey worth? $1,000, $500? Big deal, so let him lose $500. I have to waste my whole time now, run around in a field, in a, in a desert, in a heat, to look for his donkey? Yes, you are obligated to help your friend, your brother. So the Chachamim say, if you obligate to help the donkey of your friend, it needless to say that you have to save his soul. His soul is lost. That's why it's the biggest mitzvah in the Torah to save souls with the biggest reward. Whether you save the soul with your mouth, whether you save your soul with your money, your support. It's the biggest and best investment you can ever do. Which reminds me, Baruch Hashem, that my film in English is 98% finished. Baruch Hashem, as they say, it's going to take about a month. It's basically already ready. I watched it. I made some comments to make some corrections. Bezrat Hashem, in a week, it'll be ready to publish it. The Hebrew one had 450,000 views. It's one hour film. 450,000 people watched it. Do you know what the profit, the people that made that film made? <laughs> endless amount, endless. All these billionaires you hear about the news don't have 1% of what these people that made that films already got. Because here it's not money we're talking here. We're talking Olam Abba, Habibi. Thanks to you, you have 450,000 of Torah and so many new people that start to keep Shabbat. Hopefully the English one will have more views. More views than the one. It's just the matter how much we promote it. We'll promote it on Facebook, on YouTube. We'll pay the money. You're going to see. Every day 10,000 views. Tomorrow 20. The next day 30, 40, 50. It's going to grow up a lot. And we're going to make Bezrat Hashem thousands of new Shomrei Shabbat. That's, that's what it means if the donkey of your friend is lost. You are obligated to find it and return it to him. If his soul is lost, you have a billion times bigger obligation to bring back the soul and connect it to Hashem. Otherwise, you'll be held responsible. In the, in the curses of Parashat Kitavo, there are 98 curses over there. If you are brave, go and read it. One of the things over there is Arur Asher Lo Yakim et Divrea Torah Zod Vamar Kolaam Amen. Hashem split six, six uh, tribes on Ar Eval and six tribes uh, on the Ar Grizim. Grizim is where the, the Karaim lives. Uh, they have, they have this, this like a cult of people who did not follow Torah Shebaal Peh, the oral law. They follow the written law, but they're not Shomronim, whatever their name is. 
Today they live there, but back in the time of the Torah, there are two mountains. Areval is all desert and thorns. Argrizim, it's all green. Green is blessing, thorns and desert is a curse. All the curses came from Areval, all the blessings came from Argrizim. The last list on the curses is Arur Asher Loyakim et Divrei Torah Azot Ve'amar Kol Ha'am Amen. Someone who will not support the Torah will be cursed, Arur, like the snake. And everybody screamed, Amen. Amen. Why? It doesn't say Arur Asher Lo Yekayem et Divrei Torah Azot. It didn't say someone who will not keep the Torah will be cursed. This is written in different places. Over here it says Yakim. You know what does it mean, Yakim? Something fell on the floor and you help it to stand back on his feet. An old man, Lo Alenu, fell on the floor. Two people come, hold his hands and pick him up. He cannot get up on his own. If you don't help him, he's going to lay there for the whole day. He cannot get up. You need to, to, to pick him up. So by him, by you bringing him up, lifting him up, back on his feet, you give him his existence back. Meaning there are places in the world that the Torah was forgotten. It's our obligation to make sure that the Torah will arrive to those places, to those lost people who never heard of it or barely know what it is. That's the obligation of each one of us. One more thing we have to ask. It's written, Ma ekov lo kava el, om lo el. Rashi writes, I cannot curse right now because God eliminated the, the anger that he has every day. I'm trying to find it, but I can't find it. So, Rabotai, there is a different anger of Hashem. One anger on the world and one anger on the individual. We sometimes make Hashem very angry by the way we behave. We may feel it an hour later when we see what's the outcome of that anger in our life. Sometimes it will take a day, sometimes a week, sometimes a month, sometimes a year, sometimes 50 years. And sometimes it will only affect us in the afterlife. How? Depend where we're gonna go. If we go to hell, then we will understand that we are now paying for what something we did 50 years ago. Or if we go to Kafakela, which is an even worse, then we will be told that that's because of what we did 50 years ago. Sometimes it doesn't have to be hell in Kafakela. It will be a new reincarnation. You will be born in a horrible family. Your parents will beat you up 20 years until you run away from home and you live somewhere in uh, who knows where. There are many teenagers who suffered abuse. Then they come to the rabbi and say, you want me to believe in God? Did you see what kind of childhood I had? Did you see my abuser father or my abuser mother or both? Or my teachers or whatever I had to go through? 
even that is calculated one million percent precisely. Everyone is born to exactly where Hashem wanted him to be born. Nothing is random. Who will be your parents and what street and what they're going to do to you and how are you going to suffer in your childhood or later on. Everything is a continuation from, from bad choices you made in your past life. So if you have defects in your health or in your body or in your mental state or anything like that, everything is 100% decided in your trial when you died in your past life and past body. And when Hashem decided to reincarnate you back in a, in a world, He decided exactly where you'll be born. If you'll be a prince living in a palace with servants and have the life, or you're going to be born in a poor neighborhood into crime and abuse and who knows what. And from such a low place, you're going to have to elevate yourself and to become righteous. If you will be born to some holy rabbi in Jerusalem or Bnei Brak or another holy place, it was not random. If you will be born in a worse place on earth, it's not random. Everything is results of the consequences of our choices. This is one of the 13 principles of Judaism. That Hashem runs the world, He rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Nothing is coincidence. Everything that happens to you, any surim below avon. There's no suffering unless there were prior sins that caused the suffering. If now all of a sudden suffering came to you, as a reason. If you get hit on your eyes, or on your mouth, or on your ears, on your knees, on your back, on your stomach, everything is calculated. Stomach can be what you ate, mouth what you spoke, or what you eat, eyes what you're looking at, avodazarah, prostitution, all kinds of horrible things. Everything has a price tag. For good or for bad. Just like a worker can make money and can penalize. Just like, you know, many, many ways in life. There is reward and punishment in every day's life. So, sometimes the anger of Hashem is general anger. There is an opportunity to curse in these moments. Sometimes the anger is private anger on the individual. Right? If Hashem is angry at Bil'am personally, not at the whole world, just at him right now when he wants to do, go and curse the Jewish nation, this is a private anger. He cannot take advantage on such anger and go and curse. It won't help. If the Midat Adin is in the entire world every day, that's a different story. Now a curse can create a big problem. Now let's look into the words of Bilam. It's written in his prophecy, Lo ish el ve'ekazev u'ben adam ve'itnecham ahu amar ve'lo ya'ase ve'diber ve'lo ye'kimena. It's his hard, hard language. Translation, the Rashbam, the grandson of Rashi, explain. God is not a human being. Human being disappoints. That's his nature. You ask him to do something, he let you down. 
You ask him to give, he didn't. You ask him not to, not to take, he took. You ask him to do your favor, he did the exact opposite. You ask him to change the way he dress, he doesn't care. You ask him to cut his hair, he doesn't care. You ask him to return the car on a specific time, big deal. He doesn't care what you say. There are two kinds of teenagers. There are teenagers who do not listen to their parents, but they care somewhat to what they say. They try to minimize the damage. Meaning, if the father asks his son, why are you walking around with such a blorit? It's a big chilul Hashem. So he's gonna cut a quarter of an inch. Here, here, I cut. Here, Abba, look. Well, I'm not putting it up, I'm putting it down. Of course, as soon as you leave the house, you put it up. It's ego. Bring tragedies to the Jewish nation, it's written. Someone who's proud of his hair. Big problem. Apparently it's much more severe than what people think. But at least he cares somewhat to what his parents do. Some kids, don't tell me what to do, it's a free country. We are in democracy. I'm 18 already. Just give me the money and be quiet. Where is the key for the Mercedes, old man? Some of them even called their parents by their name. I remember I once went to a garage, auto repair place. The owner was Israeli and had a son. Still have a son. As I'm waiting for my car to be fixed there, his son came in. I'm just changing the name, I'm making up a name. He called, he's, he's coming to his father, Chaim, Mercedes? He calls his dad by his first name. Where is the Mercedes key? I was shocked. When he came out of the office, I asked him, he's calling you by your first name? He said, can you believe it? Run, run after him, tell him something. He's afraid to tell him. He's afraid of him. He's afraid of his son. Maybe, maybe beat him up. I don't know what's the story over there. This is the kind of people you have today. Banim gidalti veromamti vehem pashubi. Children that I raised and took care of stabbed me in the back. Pashubi rebelled against me. This is what Hashem said to us. This is what we say to some of our children. In the end, only what they care about is themselves. But there are two kinds of kids. Kids who care a little bit who, and kids who do not care at all. Very rarely, trust me from 27 years of experience, very rarely you find in America a teenager that cares 100% about his parents and will overcome his personal desire and will to listen to his parents and do what they say and not what he wants to do. Very rarely. Not even one out of a thousand. I said to uh, somebody that was very worried about the situation with her son today, at least your son rebel against you, but he tried to ease the damage by comforting you in other ways. 
That's 50-50. It could have been much worse. That it doesn't even put an X on you, nothing. Talk to the world, he does whatever he wants. So there remains, there's still hope maybe one day we'll turn around and we'll become the exception of the rule. That will actually listen and take the advice and whatever the parents say, say yes, Abba, yes, Mommy. I'll do exactly what you want. It's very, it's not, doesn't exist. One generation ago, if the father came home, he didn't need to speak. Everyone was standing like soldiers. He didn't have to tell his son, lower the music, or go put a shirt on. Because the boy already knew when my father will arrive from work in 10 minutes, that's the end of me, if he will find me walking around like the way I am. Or this music that he doesn't like, that I listen to. I remember I used to wait by the window to see when my father is going to come out of the passage, which is a hundred yards away from my, my apartment. It gives me three minutes to make sure to lower the volume of the, of the stereo system. Because he, he hated it that I blast the music in a whole neighborhood. Everybody hear the music from the window. So I was nervous waiting. I know that time is, is any minute going to come. Soon as I saw him come out of, you know, coming out of the entrance, I ran to the stereo like petrified. Before he will hear it, because he can hear it from far away. But sometimes he heard it anyway. And I would be so nervous when he knocks on the door and I open the door, if his first comment would be, again you played the music when I told you not to. So you see, in the end we did what we wanted to do. But at least we did cheshbon. Some kind of consideration we had to our parents. This consideration in this generation is totally gone. Especially by the rich people. The more they give to their children, the more ungrateful they are. Many of them throw their parents when they get older in some old age place and barely ever come to visit them. I had by me a, a person on Shabbat that through the conversation we found out that I knew his grandparents. They used to live not far from where we are and they moved. And when I asked him the name of his grandparents, he didn't know. They didn't know. So the last time I saw them was in my bar mitzvah, meaning more than 12 years ago. He didn't remember the name of his grandparents. Why? Not his fault. Meaning, I already got the point. His parents probably rebel against the grandparents. They were not in touch, and the kid grew up without grandparents. How many kids in the world do you know that don't know the name of the grandparents from their father's side? How many? This can only happen in this generation. Do you know, find anywhere by the goim someone who doesn't know the name of his grandparents? Fine. No, go and go ask million people. What's the name of your grandparents from your father's side? How many people won't know the name? I was shocked. I was trying to think what's their name. Meaning the last 12 years he didn't even think about his grandparents once. And the Gemara say, Bnei banim ke banim. Grandkids are the kids. You have to teach your kids and your grandkids Torah, not just your kids. You still have responsibility for your grandchildren. So, 
we have a, another kushya. It's written over here, God is not a human being. It doesn't disappoint. There's no such thing. Sometimes he performs, sometimes he disappoints. No. He's not a human being to change his mind. A human being is changing his mind. Hashem is not moody. He wakes up in the morning in a good mood. He decides to bring blessing to someone. But then in the afternoon, maybe the stock market went down, so he got angry. So now he, he canceled the blessing and turned it into a curse. This is what people do. People are moody. When you go in front of a judge in a court in Manhattan, you have to hope that his wife didn't get him angry before he left the house. If he found out his wife charged something big on a credit card and he's a stingy judge, who do you think is going to take all the anger on? On you. You're going to be, you happen to be the wrong guy in the wrong time. But if his wife just told him that they made a lot of money because his father inherited to them, I don't know, $100,000, he's in such a good mood, you got lucky. Instead of three years in prison, he gave you six months service in the hospital. These are people. People judge based on many factors. Hashem is more precise than a computer. Just like you know the computer reacts precisely according to the scenarios. By Hashem it's always working the same way. Let's see what, the, what, what does it mean. This is a verse in the prophecy of Bilam. Lo Yishel. God is not a person. Ve'chazev. That he should disappoint. Uben Adam ve'itnecham. Person that changes his mind according to his mood. No. People speak a lot. The Gemara say there are two kinds of people. Righteous and wicked. What's the difference between them among many other differences? Righteous, they speak a little bit and they do a lot. Wicked, they speak a lot and even a little bit they don't do. Nothing. Like a phone with Avram. You want the cave? What is it 400 between me and you? You can have it. In the end, he killed him on the price. It reminds me about a guy that opened the restaurant. And he's standing by the door of the restaurant. And he sees his friends from yeshiva with his wife and three kids. Walking in the street. In Israel. Good to see you. Oh, it's been a while. Come, come, come enjoy my food. Oh, you want the restaurant? Yeah, very nice. Come, come enjoy my delicious food. Come. They sit, bring burgers, bring this, bring steak, bring drink, coke, this, that. The bill, almost a thousand shekel now. Five people. All of a sudden, the waiter, Puts a bill on the table. A thousand shekel. Ma? He's, he's charging us for the meal? He said, come, enjoy my delicious food. He didn't say it's going to be full price. Excuse me, ma'am. Yitzhak. I'm sorry. We, we, we have a misunderstanding over here. You told us, come, enjoy the food. We thought you were inviting us. So what does it look to you? Like Betam Khoi? This is a business here. What do you mean, come and eat? Well, everyone I know is going to come to eat for free. Use your head. Are you out of your mind? I was under the impression you were inviting us for the meal. 
Aren't we good friends? Good friends until it comes to the money. <laughs> Who is right? Is this deceiving? Oh no. The owner of the restaurant is a deceiver or the friend with his family is just a fool? Now if they come to you in a court, rabbinical court, and you're one of the rabbis that sits as a judge, how would you rule in the case that the guy has to pay the whole thousand shekel, that he doesn't have to pay anything, or they have to compromise and meet in the middle? What would you do? Whatever he has to pay, he's going to have to pay. You know, now with the restaurant, you know, if my friend there, my restaurant, come on and eat, I know that I'm going to have to pay to you. Here. The language is very tricky. Come enjoy my food. So the, the, the answer is, the answer is, you're right, he basically never told him come eat for free. And as long as he did not say you can eat complimentary or eat for free, he, he doesn't have to, he doesn't, he, he has to pay him for the thing. In the end, they asked the owner of the restaurant. After all, it was a misunderstanding. So please meet him in the middle. And no, but they, they some people give for free. Baruch Hashem, there are some people. First of all, I, it's not true. It's not true. It's not true. Some people give for free, and some people not only give for free. Even when you beg them to take money, they refuse. I know people like this, and they are smart because they can take the money and they don't have the mitzvah. And if they did for free, they got the mitzvah at least. And mitzvah is much more than the money. You should know that. In, no, but I want, I want to, I want to tell you something over here. Since he did not say it's for free, he could, he basically could have stick to his opinion, and he had to pay him the full amount. But because it was, after all, a misunderstanding. In the end, they split it. But it, you know what happened to me one time? I'll tell you what happened to me. One time, <laughs> my son and my wife went to a very good restaurant somewhere in New York, and I know the manager. Because I've been there once, and he told me he likes to listen to my lecture, and he loves it, it helps him. So I call up the guy, and I said to him, don't charge my son anything, here is my credit card. When the meal finished, charge my credit card. I see the next day, there was no charge. I called him up. I said, maybe you forgot. Whatever the bill was, please charge my card. He said, no, don't worry. It's okay. They didn't eat almost anything. It's on the house. So, next time I came to that restaurant, I already know this guy is my biggest fan, you know. So, I'm not expecting him to give us the whole meal for free, but they give you all kinds of things for free, you know. Dessert, this. He started to put things on the table. I wasn't asking for any of that. We made an order. He puts these appetizers and another one and another one and another one. I said, this guy is such a generous heart. I asked him, no, no, too much, you can't eat all that. No, no, taste from this, try this, try that. He had to see the bill he gave me in the end. Even for the napkins he charged. <laughs> so, I don't know what happened to him. In the beginning he was in the yeshiva of Avraham Avinu and then he moved to the yeshiva of Bilam. 
I don't know, whatever the case was, that was 100% deceiving. Look, don't forget that people take it for granted also. They go because they're afraid, they take, they can eat. They can, yeah. but, no, but here, over here, if we ask him to bring and expected him not to charge, then you're right, he has a point. Who told you I'm not gonna charge? But he was bringing on his own. Nobody ordered it. He put like 10 plates. Each one was 20, 25 dollars, each plate. He had to see the bill. <laughs> I said, whoa, we need a mortgage for this bill. So, I don't know, maybe he regrets that he didn't charge in a past meal and he decided now to stick it to me, you know. We kill two birds with one stone. One way or the other, sometimes the owner of the business is a deceiver. This was a perfect example of deceiving the person that eats by you. Over there, it was also deceiving. But deceiving in such a way that you win the case. For instance, if you would come and say, come eat on, on the house, or come, you know, or something that either way it's clear that he expected money. That's it. There's nothing you can do. Anyway, time is running out, so I just want to finish this and we'll continue tomorrow. We have a problem with this. The Rashbam say, Hashem is not a person that once he gives a blessing, later he regrets, he changes his mind. Uh, because, you know, the nation of Israel, if they deserve a blessing, it's blessing. If it's not, not. But well, one second yes, one second no. So we understand from the explanation of the Rashbam that if the Jewish nation would commit a sin after the blessing that Hashem gave them, Hashem was permitted to cancel the blessing. But we have a rule. Every good prophecy in the Torah that came in the name of God can never be canceled. Once something good came out of his mouth, that's it. It's sealed. If later the person became wicked, he's going to give him different punishment. But the blessings that he got can never be canceled. However, if there was a bad prophecy, it can always be canceled in the future. Depend on a person's behaving. If the person will repent, Hashem will cancel the bad prophecy and the bad decree. The person won't repent, then the prophecy, when the time comes, it will happen. But a good prophecy, meaning I'm going to give you a blessing, or I'm going to give you a place, or I'm going to give you a state, or whatever the case is, once I say I'm going to give it to you, there is no cancellation for that. Now, according to this, there's a contradiction. Meaning we understand that Hashem did not allow Bilam to curse us because we didn't do anything wrong to deserve it. Meaning if we did something wrong, then Hashem could have changed the blessing into curses. Which one of the two is correct? It's true that a good prophecy is never going to get cancelled. The Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, page 17, the Gemara says, If the Jewish nation were all righteous on Rosh Hashanah, Baruch Hashem, everyone did repentance on Elul, Slichot, charity, learning Torah, prayers, four o'clock in the morning, waking up every day, Elul, month of Elul. Baruch Hashem, everyone was purified. And Rosh Hashanah, Hashem wrote, this year will be blessed with rain in Israel. The rain in Israel is subject to the people behaving. A lot of mitzvot, more rain. Not a lot of mitzvot, or perhaps sins, 
drought, no rain. Not like here. Here you have rain all the time, every week almost. Even though now it didn't rain until yesterday for almost a month. Finally, yesterday and today, it rained more than two months. <laughs> Just yesterday and today. Why? In the end, America is blessed with rain. In New York, I should say. But what happened after Sukkot, the nation of Israel became wicked again. On Rosh Hashanah, everyone, everyone did Shuvah in Elul. After Sukkot, they went back to, again, to do bad things. But Hashem already wrote X amount of rain. Can he cancel the rain or whatever he promised on Rosh Hashanah must happen? The answer, the Gemara says, the amount cannot be changed. Why? It's a good prophecy. It's a good decree. But the timing can be changed. Meaning, you need, let's say, one rain a week. Too much is not good. Too little is not good. What will Hashem can do? Four days in a row, massive amount of rain and floods. Not only doesn't help, it kills all the tomatoes and cucumbers and eggplants and everything. And then two months no rain. If you spread the rain correctly, when should be the first rain, when should be the last rain, and in between, and when the rain is going to fall, like Friday night, it's perfect. No one gets wet. Everyone is in a house, Kiddush, Shabbat. No one is at work, no one is in a field. People don't walk on Shabbat anywhere. Remember, in the old days, no electric, no light in the street, no malls. No, none of the things that people have today, the Mechalel Shabbat. In the old days, I want to Shomer Shabbat. So Friday night was perfect time to rain. The vegetables and the fruit and the wheat get the water that it needs and no people get wet. There's no umbrellas. People ride on donkeys and horses for miles. They can get so wet and, and sand is flying in their face and they get dirty. So the people used to pray, Hashem, when I go on the road, please make sure there's no rain for two, three days. That's why the Kohen Gadol, when he goes to pray on Yom Kippur in Kodesh HaKodashim, the prayers take two minutes. And guess what he's praying for? That the people that pray that you should not rain, please don't accept their prayers. Because there is always going to be Jews who pray, today don't give rain, because I'm going to be on the road. It's not like today, you sit in a car, rain, no rain, big deal, I'm, I'm, so, I'm protected. In the old days, it was on a donkey. If the rain's going to fall on me three hours, my whole clothes going to get ruined. It's a problem. The, the horse going to get stuck in the mud, the carriage going to get stuck. There's a lot of problems. People used to beg Hashem, please, today, no rain. And tomorrow, please, no rain. And the next day, no rain. So the Kohen Gadol cancel all the prayers that it should not be rain. Otherwise, we'll starve to death. There's no way to import water from Turkey or to bring a horse all the way from a different country into Israel and pay them for, for the water. So there was a different world. So the Gemara say, if Hashem say that it's going to be a lot of rain this year, but it didn't say when it's going to rain. If people behave, it's going to rain in perfect timing. If they don't behave, it's going to bring the rain in the worst timing and mess it up. Meaning, even though the decree was good in general, it can still be tampered with. 
depend on how you behave. And that's what Yaakov was afraid. Hashem blessed him that he will give him and protect him and give him everything to eat. And, to, and what's the first thing Yaakov asked when he woke up from the dream? If you give me something to wear and clothes to, eat, and clothes to wear and food to eat and you protect me from the enemies on the road, I will give you 10% and everything I will earn. I already promise you. You are protected, you will have. Why is he so afraid? The Gemara says, He was afraid that maybe he's going to commit a sin that will tamper with the blessing that Hashem gave him in his dream. So we see from here that even if you got a blessing from Hashem, you can still ruin it later on by the way you behave. So what's over here? What's over here? We see that Akanosh Baruch Hu doesn't cancel the good prophecy, but there is still a way to move it left and right based on the people's behaving. One more explanation. Bilam, the wicked Bilam, you know, according to his understanding, whatever, what the, the, the rule that Hashem does not cancel a good prophecy, it's only about Jewish prophets. All the prophecies that Hashem gave to the Jew through the Jewish prophets obviously cannot be cancelled. But a prophet that is a goy and his prophecy is not necessarily for the Jewish people, is a goy, it doesn't mean that Hashem cannot cancel the good prophecy. Right? By the prophet, the Jewish prophet, how do you know if the prophet is real or not? You're not allowed to test him by doing magic. Perform a magic like we know if you're a real prophet or not. No, because filthy people can also perform magics. We saw it by the Khartoumim of Paro. They threw the canes on the floor and it became a snake. And they were idol worshippers, wicked guys. So performing magic is not a sign you're righteous. Sometimes it's the exact opposite, that you have sitra achra power. So the Rambam writes, how do you know if the prophet is real or not? You wait for the time that the prophecy should start. If he gave a good prophecy and when the time came, it started, he's a real prophet. If he didn't start, he's a bad prophet, a false prophet. Why? Because a good prophecy can never be cancelled. If he gave that next year on, uh, on the middle of, uh, of the month at 2pm, that's going to start having a serious blessing and it didn't happen, you know he's a liar. Meaning from here we learn that good prophecy will not be cancelled. So why does Hashem not cancel the good prophecy? That the Jewish nation we have, will have tools to know who is a real prophet and who is not. Something like this does not apply to non-Jewish prophet. By the non-Jewish prophet, there was no such thing. You wait until the prophecy and you check if it's real or not. Because the Jewish people have no obligation to believe in Goyim prophet. We don't have to follow Bilam or no other Goy that is not Jewish. So therefore, because we don't have a way to, to check them if they're real or not, it doesn't apply to the Goyim. So Bilam thought, even though Hashem blessed them, He can still cancel the blessing. And if He cancel the blessing, I will be able to curse them. And if I'll be able to curse them, what will be? I'm going to become a billionaire. I'm going to get tons of, uh, tons of, uh, of gold and money. 
Tomorrow, Bezrat Hashem in Brooklyn, we will find out how it all ended. In the end, he wasn't able to curse. But he did something a lot worse than cursing. One thing we should know, Bilam said in his speech, Bilam said in his speech, all the blessings that Bilam say turned into curses, the Gemara say, except one. One of the blessings remained until today. Ma tovu alecha Yaakov, mishkenotecha Israel. This verse is the only blessing that remained. That's why the Ashkenazi Sidur start with this verse in the morning. Open the Ashkenazi in the first page. Translation How good are the tent of the nation of Jacob? What's the difference between Ohel and Mishkan? Ohel is a temporary resident. You move it from one place to another. It's a tent. Today it's here, tomorrow it's there. Mishkan, it's a permanent building. Like we had a place, you make it permanent and everybody knows it's there. There's an address there. Oil, it's moving from one place to the other. Oil also, it's a term in the Torah for someone who sits and learns Torah. Yaakov is Tam Yoshev Alim. Yaakov, Jacob, is an innocent, complete human being, righteous. He sits all day in a tent. What would he do in a tent? Looking at the walls? Obviously, he was sitting and learning Torah. Esav is a hunter. Hunter, hunting animals. Esav is in the field. The hand of Esav are strong. He has a sword and he lives by his sword. Like Yitzchak. That's the blessing Yitzchak gave him. You should live by your sword. And Jacob is a learner of Torah. So Bilam say, as long as the Jewish people sit in tents, meaning in yeshivot, and they learn Torah, nobody can touch them. They have special protection. This verse has another meaning. Bilam saw that the tent of the Jews, the, the entrance of the tent, each line has tents. The entrance of one tent on the right and the tent on the left are not facing each other. One is facing the right, one is facing the left. Why? That they should not see into each other's home. It's not modest. But you want to see the wife of your friend now inside the tent? If the door, if somebody open and she's inside, it's not modest. So they made sure one tent will be to the right, one to the left. Diagonals. Two reasons. One is Ainara, evil eye. And second, modesty. Which one of the two was higher reason? This is tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to speak about modesty, Ainara, some interesting topics for tomorrow. But this is the only blessing that remains. But one thing Bilam said in the prophecy, Tamut nafshi mot yesharim, I want to die like the Jews die. Meaning the Jews and the Goim do not die the same. And want to go where the Jews go. Meaning there is a difference how the Jews finish their life here and where they go compared to non-Jews. 
So he wants to die like a Jew. He wants to go where God can take the souls of the Jews, but he doesn't want to live like a Jew. He doesn't want to stop being greedy and a liar and a murderer and a deceiver and running after material and all the things that he's looking for. But at the same time, he wants to go to exactly where Moshe Rabbeinu and Aaron and Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and all the other tzaddikim went. But we learn from his prophecy that when people ask you, how do you know there is life after death? There is a verse. I want to die like the righteous Jews. Mot Yesharim means straight, honest people. And my end should be like the end of these Jews. When they leave the world, I want to end where they end. Meaning you can learn from here that where we go and where the other nations go, it's not the same. However, you should know one thing. When the Gentiles are righteous, they go to heaven. It's a lower level of heaven than the heaven of the Jews, yes, because they have much less to do. So according to the effort, that's how much the profit is. So if the Goim converted, they are regular Jews. They can go to where all Jews go, because now they have a lot more to do. So no, no discrimination. If they remain a righteous Gentile, they have a reward based on righteous Gentile which even wicked Jews cannot go there. Believe me, many of the wicked Jews, all these Mechalele Shabbat, which are all wicked, they would die to go to where the righteous Gentile go in the next world. But they won't. Where they go, it's a million times worse. That's why I ask, what's better, to be a wicked Jew? Yes, son of God, came from the chosen people, but wicked. Don't keep Shabbat, don't put filin, steal, speak Lashon Ara, don't eat kosher food, dress not modest, etc. And gain a lot of punishments. Or to be a righteous, simple guy that believes in one God, doesn't commit any crimes of the seven laws, being a decent person, not an anti-Semite. Not an idol worshiper, not a murderer, doesn't eat animals unless they dead first, behave modestly, that's it. And go to heaven. What's better? To me it's simple. Better to go to heaven. If you go to heaven of the Jews, perfect. If not there, at least heaven of the Gentiles. It's heaven. What's better? Hell, kafakela, reincarnations of all kinds of raw material and animals? Of course not. So, what's the best way is to be a righteous Jew, yes. Some Gentiles, they want to be righteous Jews, but they have no way. They're Anusim. They live in isolated places, I don't know, India, all these places. There's no money to convert there. They can come to America. Nobody lets them in. No one would let them in to Israel. They maybe live in some Muslim country that we don't have any open borders with. They are dying to convert and no one is there to convert them. Some of them live like Jews. They don't eat meat because it's not kosher. They, marash, because of the lectures. They are dying to convert, but there is no way to convert them. And Jews that can keep the mitzvot any second, nobody holds their hand. Not interested. Not interested. <laughs>
That's what they say. God give uh, nuts to someone who doesn't have teeth. The problem is, my friend, is that the Jews have teeth. They can eat these nuts. They just refuse. If you know what I mean. Thank you very much. We'll see you tomorrow in Brooklyn. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Rabbi Hanania ben Akashia Omer, Atzai Gadosh Baruch Hu Lezakot Et Yisrael. Le'efichach, Yerba Laim Torah Mitzvot.